What is the purpose of education and leading an examined life? How are we educating students for the future in this age of AI and the rapidly changing workplace? What is the importance of the humanities? In this conversation, Mia sat down with Michael S. Roth, the president of Wesleyan University and a Wesleyan graduate himself. He's been a professor in history and the humanities since 1983, was the founding director of the Scripps College Humanities Institute, and was the associate director of the Getty Research Institute. His scholarly interests center on how people make sense of the past, and he has authored eight books around this topic, including his latest, The Student, A Short History. And now, their conversation. So the pressure these days, as you suggest, is that the student is someone who learns to think for themselves, is confronted with tools of thinking, especially generative language models of artificial intelligence, tools of thinking that will do it all for you. And so what does it mean to be a student if what you learn to do is simply ask a machine better questions? Is that a step forward or a step backward in the idea of the student? I tend to think it's too early to know, but I do fear that it could be a step backward in the following sense, that the tool can take over for us. Our thinking, I tell my students in my class this semester that you, you, you don't want to outsource your thinking, but that's like outsourcing your humanity. But some of them do want to outsource their thinking because thinking is hard work, strenuous, and maybe you'd rather not do that. But to me, that's a great abdication of creativity and humanity. I don't think it has to be that way. I think we can actually use these tools just like we use calculators, let's say, or other shortcuts in thinking and we will, for sure. I don't think there's any putting that genie back in the bottle. But I, I do worry that we now have this enormous temptation to stop thinking, to stop learning, and to just provide prompts to a machine that'll do it for us. You know, it's like the, the Garden of Eden story all over again. AI is that tree of knowledge. You can just take it. The strenuous work of growing up and thinking for yourself is no longer that important. But I fear if that happens, then we'll be in a situation of repetition, imitation, and we'll find ourselves in the position of enslaved peoples, unable to learn because the tool learns for us. I think shortcuts, they're very convenient, but convenience is not the only value. If it becomes the only value, I, I think we live in an impoverished world. I, I, I should say, though, that I think a, a really important feature of learning is to not lose the past. In other words, that it's not just about preparing for the future, it's also about remembrance and recollection and having some connection to the past. Not everybody feels that way, of course, and, and some people feel that way more strongly than others, but I think it would be a shame to lose our desire to connect to things that occurred before us. AI, at the moment, is very good at inventing past and inventing or hallucinating worlds that might be, but not necessarily, did not necessarily happen. I think the effort to construct a past that you can live with, is really an important feature of, of being human in the last couple of hundred years now. What I mean by that is that, you know, even in, like in a therapeutic encounter, you can imagine, maybe this analogy works, you can imagine a therapeutic encounter where you say, you know, every time I get close to someone, I panic and I, I can't work and I can't eat every time I get close to someone, especially when I like them. And then I say, oh, 
here's a prescription, take this pill and you won't panic. That's a tool. But many people say, well, I want to know why I'm doing this. Like, wh what about it? What is it about my life that has led me to, to panic anytime someone gets close to me? Well, some people say, I don't care what happened. Here's the prescription. This is a version of AI. Here's your prescription. Take the pill and no more panic. You won't feel much desire, but you won't feel any panic either. Some people take that trade off. I, I think it's an enormous value in, in that questioning. Like, why do I feel this way? How did I come to be the person I am? And trying to answer that question rather than just getting the, the script to relieve, to take a shortcut. And so when I talk to my students about AI, I say, of course, you can use it you can, as long as you cite it. But what I worry about is they won't wrestle with the poem or the novel. They won't even have to read it. They just ask you, what is the novel about? That's a shortcut. But you deny yourself the pleasure and the, this kind of deep emotional satisfaction that comes from wrestling with a, a work of art or a, a story. And of course, not everybody feels that way, but I think a lot of people do, and I would hate to lose that feeling. I, I don't covet more processing speed, actually, myself. I, I would like to have more time to dwell on something rather than to race through it. So I wish I had more time for contemplation, but I don't need a neural link for that. I just need to sit quietly a little bit more and to spend time with things. I was reading, you mentioned Emerson before, and I, I love reading Emerson because it takes time. You have to slow yourself down. And Lewis Hyde had a recent essay about Thoreau, a similarly intensive thinker that you have to adjust your expectations for change and stimuli when you read someone like Thoreau or like Jan Fossa, you have to pay attention differently and not just more quickly. And I'm very interested in that slowing down, I guess, rather than speeding up. I turn to people I trust and then to editors that I trust. Sometimes they disappoint me. In other words, I'll read something and I think it's badly edited or I find out it's not what I thought it was. But I, I think the world that sometimes people celebrate without gatekeepers is a hard world to live in because you don't get filters that you trust. You just get the loudest noise or the, the one that has the most money behind it. I try to follow critics and writers and artists who I've come to trust enough to engage with. I don't have to totally trust them. We don't have to agree on everything for sure, but I trust them enough to engage with them. There's not enough hours in the day to do all that, but it's fun to try. I do love reading newspapers. I love reading book reviews because I can't read all the books I'd like to. So I spend a lot of time reading book reviews and essays about books. I ask my friends whose taste I respect about things to read. I just was in China last week and so I had a lot of plane time. So I asked my friend Merve Emra, who's here at Wesleyan now and is a critic at The New Yorker, I said, I want to read Jan Foster, who just won the Nobel Prize in Literature. And I wanted a shortcut because I hadn't read any issues in it. You have to read Septology, which is the seven volumes. I had 25 hours on a plane. So I take my Kindle because I can't carry seven or 10 books. I always have to have a lot of books with me in case I get stuck somewhere. And it was an incredible joy. Inc incredible, beautiful to immerse oneself in a book over many hours. And I felt I wouldn't mind going around the world again in a plane because I, I got to read all this stuff. You're listening to AI and the Future of Humanity from the Creative Process. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. To hear our full interview with Michael S. Roth, visit the Creative Process Arts, Culture and Society podcast. 
This podcast is produced by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Thanks for listening. Thank you.